Well, good morning. Hey, I got to tell you congratulations because you came to church on Labor Day weekend. And that means a couple things. Uh, means you're like me and don't have a life. It also means that you don't have a boat. And so I'm so proud of you for being at church this morning. Those of you watching online, you don't get to post your boat pictures this week because we'll be angry. But also, um, I don't know if this is spiritual or holy not, but just so you're aware, since you did come to church on Labor Day weekend, um, your mansion in heaven gets increased by three rooms, and you get upgraded to the granite countertops. So that's good. That's probably in Revelation somewhere. I'm not positive. Um, hey, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're jumping back into Romans uh, for the next, I think, eight or nine weeks um, as we walk, uh, just spend the last couple of years really walking through this book, and we're jumping in and out of this um, just to help us understand Romans better. Two things I want to celebrate quickly, uh, middle of a miracle stuff. First off, Pastor Joe is back, and he's doing okay. Um, he's got 10 fingers, which is awesome, and so he got, got in a fight with some yard equipment last weekend, and so he's out front talking to people still because that's what Joe does, but he'll be in here eventually, and uh, so just let me just catch you up while he's not in here. If you go for the hand, oh, he's here. If you go for the handshake, if you go for the handshake, he's going to be real awkward because he can't shake your hand. So maybe an elbow bump or a hug around the neck because he loves hugs too. Um, but also, in addition to that, um, this is crazy. And this is just, this excites me to no end. So Scott Conover, one of our interns here, he got called in to work late this morning and they're opening up a new escape room so he couldn't be here. Um, but he kicked off FCA again, just up the street at Hyatt's Middle School um, here in the Olentangy School District here in Powell. It was amazing to me. Last year, so he came to me, he said, Aaron, I, I, I got to do something student ministry. Can I try to start an FCA club? He went upstream on everything. He got it started last year um, at the school. Maxed out last year. He had one week where he hit 20 kids. And we were like, dude, this is incredible. This is our first year. Well, we started again this Friday, and we didn't know what to expect, so I only bought 18 donuts because I'm like, oh, maybe like first week, five to 10 kids, maybe, because we had minimal advertising. We had 35 kids show up and six teachers, which we only had one last year, and it was awesome, and um, that means, yeah, give Jesus a hand. If you know Scott, it's not because of Scott, it's all Jesus, right? Uh, that's a joke. That's a joke. Um, but that means a few things. Uh, first off, we need to be praying a lot. Second of off, um, we need a lot of donuts donated. If you're ever like, you know what, I could donate 48 donuts to uh, FCA, let me know, and uh, we'll get that happening. Thirdly, if you would like to participate, if you'd like to just pop in one week and lead a 10-minute devotion for these kids, maybe lead a game, pray over them, just be there to support Scott. Uh, me and him will be there every Friday. We would love participation from people in the church with the FCA program as well. And then also as you're praying, and then we'll get to Romans 3, I apologize, um, just pray for the mission field that is FCA. Now, let me, let me explain that to you. On Friday, um, we asked uh, the group, of the, all the kids, would someone close us in prayer? Now, we just finished a four-week series on prayer. Like, we believe that God wants to commune with us as we talk to him. And this sweet little girl, I think she was in sixth grade, she said, well, what do I pray? I said, just, just pray for maybe the rest of our day, that everybody has a great rest of their day. She said, okay, I can do that. And she just goes, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And she just recited the Lord's Prayer because that's all she knew to do. She didn't even know how to pray to have a good day that the Lord would guide her. Uh, talk about a mission field. 
right? We never want to just uh, assume that these kids know Jesus or that they have a relationship with him. And uh, we're going to go in there with the gospel and show them what it looks like to have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, not built on ritual, but built on actually loving the Lord um, day by day. So I'm super excited. Well, if you'll uh, stand with me in honor of reading God's word, Romans chapter 3, we're going to read verses 9 through 20, so don't lock your knees because you might pass out. This is a long passage, all right? Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, God's word says this, through the apostle Paul to the church in Rome. He says, what then? Are we any better off? He's talking to the Jews. Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and all alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. This is going to be an encouraging message if you can't tell already. Verse 13, listen to this. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Jesus, I pray that you be with us and among us today. God, as we walk through what is another difficult passage in the book of Romans, but it's one that we need to understand if we want to fully and rightly understand the gospel. So, Lord, would you give us open ears this morning to hear from your word, to hear from the throne of heaven. And God, would you give us soft and receptive hearts, not just to hear, but to actually receive the word, and then obedient hands and feet to walk in communion and obedience to Jesus the rest of this week. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, about six months ago, I was able, you didn't know this, to participate in what I believe is the most exciting and exhilarating thing that anybody can do in this country. Jury duty. If you can't tell, I'm absolutely joking, by the way. Because there's absolutely nothing more exciting than sitting in a windowless room for multiple days, arguing with strangers about a situation that you weren't even there for, and then the government is so generous to you that they give you $20 a day to cover your expenses. And if you didn't know this, by the courthouse, every meal costs roughly $20. It's like they're onto something down there. It's the best. But I just say that again, and I'm going to be totally forthright and honest with you this morning. I I wanted to celebrate to start today's service. I wanted to joke with you briefly because I need to lessen the blow a little bit of this passage. This passage in Romans 3, before we get to the good news of the gospel next week, is kind of Paul's final blow to the church in Rome for them to understand the depth of depravity that we possess as human beings. And I I, I say all of that to just let you know that the tone that we need to take with this passage needs, it's going to be a little bit somber, because I want us to fully understand that apart from Jesus Christ, how really hopeless and wretched we are as sinners. Again, the good news of the gospel is only fully understand when we understand the bad news first. 
We have to know how depraved and separated from the God of the universe we truly are before we can understand how amazing the good news of the gospel truly is that the God of the universe would come out of heaven to rescue sinners like me and like you. Let me catch us up where we've been in, in Romans briefly because it's been a couple months before we've, um, since we've looked at this book extensively. We said a couple of months ago, I think back in April or May, that the book of Romans was wholly written by Paul to the church in Rome to ensure that they had a right understanding of the gospel. He takes them very ground level. He takes John 3.16 and totally basically breaks it down over several chapters, 16 chapters in this letter to the Roman church. Now, we've, uh, we're what, week 15, I think, in the book of Romans. Again, it's taken us a long time to get here, but we've only covered like almost three chapters so far. In chapter number one of Romans, Paul makes the argument that all non-Jews, he would call them Gentiles, that's you and that's me, are guilty before God. That although the Gentiles, he said in Romans chapter one, didn't have the scriptures, that they were still guilty, that we are still guilty of sin, because even if we've never read the scriptures, we disobey the law of God that he had placed on our conscience. We ignore the God who is clearly seen in all of creation around us. You can read more about that if you want, if you want to write these down. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and Romans 2, verse 15. Then in Romans chapter 2, Paul transitions to a new audience, to the Jewish audience that he's writing to in Rome. And he tells them, hey, guess what? Good news. You're guilty too. You guys aren't going to escape from this either, from this good news of the gospel. we got to understand the bad news first. But their problem was that they had been entrusted as a people, Seth talked about this several weeks ago, with the law of God, and they still didn't live up to the standard that God had set for his people, Romans chapter 2, verse 23. And now before he explains the gospel in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 21, Paul again is just showing us one more time that we're guilty of sin. I've heard it said before, I've heard people talk about it this way, you can read different commentators that refer to Romans chapter 2, this section, as the final courtroom, that's why I started with that illustration, the final courtroom that Paul takes us all into to prove to us one more time that we're guilty, that all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, are guilty of sin. You see, here's, here's the thing that we all, all struggle with, um, we can do good things, we can make attempts culturally as, as humans to be good. But he wants to remind us one more time, and, and, and this is not popular to say. This, this is um, a difficult truth for us to swallow, no matter where we are in our walk with Jesus or even if we don't have a walk with Jesus yet, that we're not good. And that the only hope that we have in this life and in the next life is if the goodness and righteousness of Jesus gets applied to our account. Warren Wearsby, you may have heard that name before. He's a, a, a theologian in days past. He said something like this about this section of Romans. He said that this is an x-ray study of the lost sinner, where Paul takes us from our head to our foot to help us understand fully that we're not good and we desperately need Jesus. And here's what I want us to see today. Again, a somber tone with this text, and, and you may leave here a little bit depressed. That's okay, because the good news comes next week. Keep showing up, all right? But I think what's interesting with this text today is it's going to first um, cause us to look in the mirror of our lives. And I think it'll serve as a reminder if you're a Christian today that Jesus has saved you quite a bit. And if it wasn't for the hope of the gospel, my goodness, how hopeless we would be. 
I think what we're also going to see in here, and I want us to approach this with caution, is we're going to see our culture reflected um, very deeply in here. Why is that? Because our culture globally, America and all around the world, um, is ruled by sin. The Bible says that we're enslaved to sin apart from Jesus. And we react when we don't know Christ from who our ruler is, sin. And we're going to see these things And I hope that that doesn't invoke in us a pointing the finger, those people, look at them. But I hope it invokes in us a um, heartbreaking passion to take the gospel anywhere and everywhere to everyone, knowing that if it wasn't for Jesus, we would all be in that same boat. We're all lost and hopeless unless Jesus intervenes in our lives. So let's enter into this courtroom with the Apostle Paul. If you're a note taker, the first thing I want you to write down is Paul's charge, the charge to this Roman church. Look at verse 9 again. Let me read this for us. Paul says, what then? Are we better off? He's referring to the Jews. Not at all. Notice the exclamation that he puts there. I'd circle that in your Bible. Not, Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So again, the majority of chapter 2 up to this point Paul has been telling the Jews that you've been entrusted with the words of God, yet you ignored and missed what God said. And they didn't quite grasp that. They kept thinking to themselves, yeah, but we're Jews. We're God's chosen people. Just like Paul was. Paul had a Jewish heritage. And Paul reminds them with this one final blow in verse 9 that your cultural heritage, I'm sorry, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if they were born into the Jewish culture. That wasn't the thrust of what he's talking here. That's why they're asking, are we better off, Paul? Because we had the law, because we were Jewish. And what does Paul say? No. He says it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile like us in this room this morning. Paul's made this case over and over that we are all guilty of sin before God. No matter where we came from, no matter what we've done, we're all guilty before a holy God. Let's just make a couple points of application here because I think we need to say these kind of things in our culture today. Um, Did you know that your goodness and right standing, your righteousness before God is not found in the fact that you go to church every week? I know that sounds maybe a little bit elementary, but let's remind ourselves of that. God is not impressed that you got up this morning, got dressed, and went to church. He's not sitting in heaven going, my gosh, look at you, my baby, you know. I got, we can lighten it up a little bit, I guess. God's not impressed with that. God's not impressed that your parents, that you have a heritage of Christian faith. Praise God, I have that. But God's not impressed with that. That doesn't make me right with God. Why is that? Because my goodness is not found in where I came from, My goodness is not found in the things I do. Paul reminds us that we have not met God's standard of goodness. And the result there in verse 9 that we see is that apart from a relationship with Jesus, that we are now enslaved to sin. Look at your Bible there in verse chapter 9. I think this is so important. That phrase, my Bible says that we're all under sin. I like like that, that idea of being enslaved to sin better. That's what that word means. Because that gives us kind of a deeper picture of the desperation that we possess apart from Jesus Christ, that we're enslaved to sin. One person that I was reading this week that was discussing this verse here said that you are enslaved under the tyrant that is is sin. You're enslaved under the tyrant that is sin and you have no ability to free yourself. 
And because you're enslaved under the tyrant of sin apart from Jesus, you begin to take on the attributes of the one that rules you. I mean, do do we see the, the depth of depravity Do we see the vivid picture that Paul is giving us here simply in in verse 9 of a culture and a people that if we don't have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we are in the chains of sin, that Satan himself is our ruler, he is our Lord, and we will begin to take on the attributes of the one who rules us. And Paul just wants to, one more time for us this morning, just dismantle this idea that we're good, and here's how he does it. He says, sin so rules over you as the tyrant over each one of us apart from Christ that it begins to rule your heart, your mouth, and your conduct. And he shows us what that looks like, right? So he's brought this initial charge, and now he confirms it with the evidence. He's going to show us, all right, since you're under the tyrant ruler of sin, point number two, I want to give you confirmation of this. Paul says, let me give you the evidence of what this looks like. And here's what's interesting here. To bring the evidence... Paul uses the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this would have spoke to a Gentile audience, obviously, but to the Jewish audience, this would have been a gut punch for them. Because as Seth preached back, uh, I believe it was in May, he, we saw that the Jews had been entrusted with the law of God, yet they had totally missed their need for a Savior named Jesus. That's why in verse 10, you can circle this in your Bible if you want to, Paul uses this phrase here, as it is written, as it is written. That's Paul looking at the Jewish audience and going, hey, the the scriptures that you had, they said this. Um, The ones that you've read and you passed on to your children and your children's children that you you guys were so proud that you possessed, um, they said these things and you completely missed it. You totally missed your need for a savior. And so he begins here in verse 11, he's describing verse 10 and 11, a person's heart apart from Jesus, enslaved under the tyrant of sin. You can write that word down, the heart. Look at verse 10. As it is written, the Old Testament said this, Paul says, that there's not one righteous, not even one. He's quoting Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. What's the premise here? What's he want us to understand? Let me echo this for us again. You're going to be on the drive home, and you're going to be thinking this in your mind, because I want us to hear this. We aren't good people. We're on the same... Notice nobody amens that, right? (laughs) We aren't good people. Amen, preacher. That's true of me. You know, nobody, nobody does that. It's to the reminder. We need to hear this this morning. In our own merits, we are not good and we're not righteous. Why is that? Because the standard of goodness is not the person next to you. If it's the person next to you, you can justify your goodness real easily. But if the standard of goodness becomes the God of the universe, we don't even compare to his goodness. We're not even close to how good he is. We can do good things. You probably have this morning. But at the core of our being, the inner conscience of who we are, we are not good. And this is where most people struggle, in the church and outside the church. I was thinking about this this week. When when, when you do witnessing and you ask people, um, why uh, share Jesus without fear was popular years ago, and you would ask people this question. Why would God let you into heaven? What was always the response? You guys remember? Because I'm, I'm good. I'm a good person. I mean, majority of the time, that was the answer you would get from people. Why would God let you into heaven? Um, because I'm a, I'm a good person. And because subconsciously, I believe that the majority of our culture believes that, we then have to make an effort as a culture to redefine what good is. We're on the same page there? 
So if we know that goodness is the prerequisite to heaven, right, and we can't do it on our own, that's why we need Jesus, His goodness applied to our account, our culture begins to say, you know what, okay, so I, I think i got to be good to get to heaven. Well, what I'm doing isn't good, therefore I'm just going to redefine goodness and morality to fit what I'm doing. Then you can't tell me that I'm not good. You track with me here? That's why in our culture right now, when Christians try to speak up about things from a biblical worldview, a biblical morality on things like sexuality, life, morals in general, it's why that we're always met with, well, you're hateful, you're a bigot, you're out of touch with reality, you're just believing an old book. Why? Because this is what we're seeing. And man, the scripture speaks to this to this day. God's standard of goodness is here. Culture says we can't meet that. God says exactly. Insert Jesus. Culture says here's what we'll do instead. We're going to move the dial of goodness to what we're doing. We're going to move the dial of goodness to what we're doing. And this is where it will define as good now. Because if this is good, you can't tell me I'm wrong. I'm just going to redefine it. Paul says, that's, that's not how it works. You're not good. Look at verse 11. There's not one who understands. There's not one who seeks God. Verse 11, he's quoting Psalm 14, verse 2, and he's just showing us two more realities here that tie into this idea of goodness. Um, first off, Paul says that apart from Jesus, we're not wise. No one understands, is what he says. We're not wise people, although we may claim to be wise. He says in verse 11 that there's no one who understands. That means no one, again, we're not wise, we don't understand, we don't have all of this insight that we claim to have about the world and how things are supposed to function. Instead, we saw in Romans chapter 1 several weeks ago, back I believe in April, sometime around there, that apart from Jesus, our sin drives us to a place that is not wise, but actually it's foolish that we begin to function apart from Jesus Christ because we're under the tyrant of sin in a position and place that is not God-designed, that it's foolish. Do we see this stuff playing out before our very eyes? Those who do not know Jesus Christ, I'm not meaning this necessarily to be just be condemning. Why? Because we also bring the hope of Jesus. But we have to understand the bad news before we fully understand the good news. Living against the way that God designed is not wise. It's foolish. We don't get to set the standard of good. God does. And then we are responsible to live up to that standard, and we can't. So God says, fine, I'll do it for you. Jesus will, and I'll apply it to your account. But our culture continues to say, no, we're just going to move the dial on goodness and morality, and you need to rise to where we are instead. And Paul says, you're crazy. That's foolish. Let's just get real practical here. You remember in Romans chapter 1, when you begin to live from a place of what we claim to be wise but is actually foolish, we saw in Romans chapter 1 that what that actually does is lead you into this uh, perpetual descent of self-gratification. You're not concerned about the glory of God. It's only concerned about myself and appeasing myself and um, satisfying myself. Yet, what do we do with that? We say, well, this is what it's about. Like, this is good. I'm defining good now. God can't tell me what to do. I have good morals. I'm a good person. How did that manifest itself in Romans 1 among the Gentiles? Unnatural sexual relations between men and women. 
Specifically, Paul went on to say that you had people in Rome who were practicing homosexuality saying, this is good, right, and nobody can tell me any different. No one understands, Paul says. I mean, we are so broken. We're reminded of here in Romans 3. How do we see this playing out in our culture today? It's a plethora of cultural confusion going on right now in the area of sexuality. What the heck is wrong with us? And we're sitting around in our culture going, this is okay. It's not. It's not okay. Because all we're trying to do as a culture right now is we're saying, here's God's standard of morality and goodness, but here's what we're doing. So God's standard has to move to where we are. And the God of the universe says, no, 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 that's not how it works. You have to come to where I am. We don't get to define morality and goodness in our nation. We don't get to define morality and goodness in our lives. We don't get to define those things. God is the author of goodness and morality. And we have to be so cautious to make sure that we don't justify what God says is wrong and not good as normal because it is not. Don't allow people to try to infiltrate God's church and say, well, this is where we need to progress as a society. We're just moving forward in the understanding of things and science and all of this stuff. No, we're not. What we're doing is we're moving further from God's design. We're moving further from God's standard of goodness. God sets the standard of goodness. God sets the standard of morality. Let's not let culture move that dial. Let's stand on the truth. You ready? Aaron, what should we stand on? We're not good. Man, that's a hype message, isn't it? Let's get that on a t-shirt and go evangelize. Y'all suck. (laughs) That would work out great. But that's where we have to stand as a church. That's where we have to stand as followers of Jesus. Why? Because that's what the scriptures teach us. Because it's only when we fully understand the bad news of our sin that we can fully understand the good news of the gospel. Let's not allow people to just be okay in their immorality and ungoodness and their sin. Paul says the tyrant of sin holds your hearts captive, and as a result, we don't seek God and we run from him. Look at verse 12. He says all have turned away, all have become worthless. I mean, this is just like the most discouraging passage in all the scripture, if there ever was one. He says there's no one who does what is good, not even one. He's quoting Psalm 14, verse 3, if you want to write that in your your margin. He's emphasizing the heart apart from, from God. He says that we don't have the ability, because we're under the tyrant of sin, held captive to this tyrant of sin, to seek God on our own. Instead, what do we do? We run from him and we flee from him. And then Paul says, as a result of that, you ready? Man, this is going to go on the other t-shirt. This will go on the back. The front will say, you're not good. The back will say, you're worthless. (laughs) Gracious, Paul. I mean, that's strong language, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. That's a word. The Hebrew equivalent of that word actually means to spoil like milk right? If you're, if you're a, a fan of like The Office, you remember Kevin when he goes in and he keeps drinking that one jar of milk, and he's like, mm, chunky lemon milk, you know? Like that's what's going to, yeah. Office reference, there we go. If, if that, if I shouldn't have done that, email Pastor Joe, he'll take care of you. But, uh, but just think about that. Like Paul says, you're worthless. You're like spoiled milk. It's like meat that has completely rotted. What do you do with those things? You, you throw them out. They're, they're no good to you anymore. 
And just think about that, the way that God views the sinful condition. He says, sin has so marred you. You are so uh, in the depths of depravity under this tyrant of sin that apart from Jesus Christ intervening in your life, you're completely dead and separated from God. I mean, if we were going to try to argue with Paul about that we were good people, I think Paul is beginning to bring a mountain of evidence to us. He says, no, 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 in comparison to the creator of the universe, we are not good. And the only hope we have is that he steps into our lives and gives us his goodness and applies it to our account. The only hope of the world is Jesus Christ. And apart from him, the condition of us all is we're not good. Now, he goes on. He says that your, your heart's a mess. Then he talks about our mouth, our our speech, in verse 13 and 14. Listen to these descriptors. Paul says, their throat is an open grave. They, They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. If you want to write in the margin, he's quoting Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. He's giving this picture for us now of a the speech of an individual whose heart is not connected to Jesus. They've never repented of sin and had the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to their account. Jesus said it this way in Psalm chapter, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He's talking to the religious leaders. Notice the similarity of language in this verse. You brood of vipers. I mean, he says there in Romans chapter 3, he, he says, Viper's venom is under our lips apart from Jesus. He refers to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. He says, How can you speak good things when you're evil? I mean, Jesus isn't cutting any punches here. But then look at what he says For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Here's the reality. The heart condition of verses 10 and 11 informs the mouth condition of verses 13 and 14. What's going on in here and what sin has done in here will begin to inform every other area of our life if we never repent of sin and give ourselves over to Jesus wholly and completely. And that's what's going on here. What's in the heart overflows to our speech. Apart from Jesus Christ, this is descriptors that we could use about speech. Like, it's going to be speech that's coarse and self-serving and hateful. Do we have the ability to speak good things? Absolutely. But it's not the defining nature of who we are. Paul uses this phrase here that they deceive with their tongues, meaning that apart from Jesus, because we're only concerned with self-gratification and self-preservation, that we just put on a show for those around us. Life simply is about getting ahead, preserving our reputation, and we don't really care about other people. But we're called, as Paul said in Philippians 2, if we've given ourselves over to Jesus, to live lives of humility, more concerned about the needs of others than above ourselves. I mean, friends, again, we see the brokenness of who we are here. Look at verse 14. Viper's venom under our lips mouths full of cursing and bitterness when we're apart from Jesus. That's Psalm 140, verse 3 that he's quoting. Words that are foul, angry, harsh, proud, and and lustful. Speech that's divisive and dangerous. That's just the reality of the condition of our mouths when we're separated from God. You say, Aaron, but I, I know really good people that speak. Yeah, we can do good things. But it doesn't define our hearts. I did a little experiment last night. It just breaks my heart. I live five minutes from here. Went into my garage last night. There were people all over the place having parties for the the Buckeyes game. And I sat in my garage, my little desk out there, and I was studying this sermon note, and I was praying over this one verse. And I had my garage open. 
And I sat back for about three minutes and I just listened. I listened to what people all around my street were talking about, how they were referring to one another, what they were saying. It was coarse, foul, destructive language. Why? That's the heart apart from Jesus that overflows to the mouth. And friends, it's the reminder that if it hadn't been for Jesus Christ intervening in our lives, we'd be in the same boat. That's not a proclamation of judgment against anybody. My heart breaks over that. I hear that and my heart just, it, I mean, it hurts. Because they don't realize what Jesus can do for them. Just under the tyrant of sin. Paul goes on in verses 15 through 18 talking about conduct. We're not going to spend much time here because these are all pretty much wrapped up together. Verses 15 through 18, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 59. He says, apart from Jesus, if Jesus doesn't intervene in our lives, if we're lost under the tyrant of sin, that humans simply leave a trail of destruction. That without Jesus, we leave a trail of destruction. Why? Because we're running further and further from God, more concerned with power over peace. I think those are things that we see playing out on the big screen these days. I think we're seeing some of that stuff before our eyes. We're, we're more concerned about serving ourselves and taking out anybody along the way that we have to to just get a little bit further ahead. One preacher I read this week said of verses 15 and 18, if you want to get more details and commentary, just open a newspaper tomorrow you will see the trail of destruction that human beings are leaving currently around our globe. Turn on the news. We see videos of war constantly. We see videos of school shootings constantly. We see videos of vindictive world leaders always just trying to get ahead constantly. Death, destruction all over the globe. Let's just understand this, and I, I, I say this from a position of humility. None of those are political statements. This is just Bible. The Bible says that if humans, apart from Jesus Christ, leave trails of destruction. Why? Because we are under the tyrant that is sin, and we are only concerned about getting ahead. What's the solution? I'm all for making moral political decisions and supporting moral political um, ideology. I'm all for that. I'm all for that kind of thing. But it's the reminder I was talking with someone this morning out in our lobby. While all of those things are good, what is the ultimate solution to the trail of destruction that humans leave behind? It's Jesus Christ. We can, we can legislate and do anything in the world that we try to do to try to fix those things. And, I, and again, I'm for it. I'm for it. I'm for making those good moral decisions. I'm all for it. But at the end of the day, the ultimate solution to the destruction that we see caused by humanity around the globe is a fearless church with a courageous gospel. We have to understand wholly that the majority of the world is under the tyrant of sin. The tyrant of sin has completely marred their hearts. That overflows then to their speech, and it also overflows to their conduct. And the only solution is not an exterior thing that we try to force upon people. The only solution is an interior heart exchange that is done by the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ. That's where it happens. 
We have to understand the bad news before we fully understand the good news. So let's go to our very last point. What was the charge? The charge was we're all guilty of sin before God. We're not good. What's the com- com- what is the confirmation? Excuse me. It's the evidence. Paul says your heart is wicked. Paul says your mouth is wicked. Paul says your conduct is wicked apart from Jesus. So what's the conclusion? Look at verse 19. Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. If you have an ink pen or a highlighter, I want you to underline that little phrase, every mouth may be shut. If we were to put that in modern terms, this is what Paul's saying. He, he walked us into the courtroom. He said, Judge, here's the charge against humanity. Here's all of the evidence that I have against them that they're not good. And that phrase right there, let every mouth be shut, literally means that after the evidence was presented, we have no defense to give. We're not going to try to argue our way out of this because the mountain of evidence was so great that there's nothing else we could say. I was reading this week on court cases that there's been uh, instances where the evidence was so surmountable in these court cases that judges don't even give people the opportunity to defend themselves because there's so much evidence against them that's present, they don't even get the chance to plead their case. And this is where we stand in verse 19 before God, Paul says, subject to God's judgment. Why? Because we're not good, and we need a Savior named Jesus. He says in verse 20 there in, in Romans chapter 3, as we begin to close, there's nothing we can do. We need someone to stand in our place to make us right before God. And I kept writing down this phrase this week, in steps Jesus. To understand the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news. We have to understand our sinful state, that we're not good, and that the only hope that we have as human beings is a Savior. In steps Jesus. We have to understand that these verses describe you and me apart from Jesus Christ, that when we look at ourselves, don't look at these verses and go, that's not me. Yeah, it is. And it's me too. And this leaves me hopeless. But in steps Jesus. Yes, people can do good, but we're not good. And in comparison to the one that is good, we're pretty horrific. In steps Jesus offering forgiveness from the very things we read about in verses 9 through 20, offering to take over the rule and reign of your life and my life, offering to walk with us and offering a relationship for all eternity in stepped Jesus. So what's the application? And then we're done. There's two. Ask yourself today, man, this will hurt. Do any of the things in verses 9 through 20 describe me? Here's the reality, I understand, that even though Jesus has intervened in my life, we still sin, right? If you claim to be perfect, read the story of the rich young ruler. You're not. We're not. And that's why we live in this perpetual state of repentance as followers of Jesus. The Spirit of God convicts us of things that we do wrong, and we repent of those things and get back on track with the Lord. So maybe the question we should ask is not do these things describe you, but does anything in verses 9 through 20 perpetually describe you? Does it perpetually describe you? Are these defining markers of who you are, the very things we see in verses 9 through 20? And if they are, ask yourself this question, have I truly ever given my life over to Jesus and asked him to forgive my sins? Because while sin may make its entrance in the life of a Christian sometimes, sin never becomes the ruler of a Christian. It can't because Jesus has taken up residence of my heart and sin doesn't get to take that throne back. Do those things perpetually describe you? Here's the second application point, and we're done. Does reading that change the way you view the world around you? 
Because the reality is that when we open that newspaper, turn on the news, we scroll through social media, that there are things going on in this world that should make us angry. When things go just blatantly against what is righteous and good, that should make us angry. Things about justice and life, when the name of Jesus and the church of Jesus Christ is dishonored, we should be angry. But may we also be a gospel people. The Lord continues to remind me of that. May we always be a people that bring truth against sin, but also in that same breath and the same voice that we bring the hope of the gospel to sinners. May we never be a people that simply point fingers, but may we also be a people that pull others in and we offer hope for what we see around us. Because if there's one thing, and I I promise I really am done, that the Lord continues to remind me every time we approach Romans. I've been walking with Jesus now for 20 years this July. It's crazy to me. But if Jesus hadn't intervened in my story in 2003, I guarantee these words would describe me. And the same could be said of you if you're a follower of Christ in this room this morning. So may we not just be a people of truth. That is who we are. We are people of the word who bring truth into darkness, right? May we also be a people that are of gospel hope that we bring with it. Can I pray for us? Father, we love you. God, thanks for your word, for our time in your word this morning. God, I pray that it convicts us, drives us to a deeper relationship with Jesus, drives us to a deeper passion for the gospel. God, because without Jesus intervening in our story, we are a hopeless people. But because of Jesus, we are a people that have hope. We are forgiven people whose the righteousness of God has been credited to our account. Lord, it's the greatest news in the whole universe. God, I pray now as we sing that God, our voices would just, as we pray every week, be a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven that we give Jesus the praise that he and only he deserves. It's in your name we pray, amen.